Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm David Blight. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Slavery and Its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Hello there, this is Tom Thurston, and today we're talking to Brad Proctor, who is the Cassius Clay Fellow at the, with the Department of History here at Yale University. He's originally from St. Louis, Missouri, but he earned his BA from Bates College and his PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. His research and teaching interests include the history of race in the United States. He's working on a book manuscript on the history of the Ku Klux Klan, which we're going to be talking about. And he's written articles on black militia com uh, companies during Reconstruction, radical Republicans, and the Fourth, 14th Amendment. So really, I'm interested in the work that you've been doing uh, during this fellowship period on, on the Klan. Uh, could you tell us first, uh, how did you get in, interested in, in this particular topic? Where did it begin? Sure. Uh, I didn't come into it out of an interest in the Klan as a hate group on its own, but rather from a wider interest in uh, how the U.S. South grappled with race after emancipation um, and before the development of racial segregation. I've been interested in um, how race has played out in U.S. history for a long time. And so um, uh, in searching for different kind of topics to study what has what has been looked at and you know questions that I had uh, that I didn't feel like the existing existing work had answered, um, I really became interested in that switch from emancipation to segregation, that, that period of roughly 30 years in the South, where there were opportunities for some uh, right. semblances of racial equality, but then um, it got shut down by a variety of means. And uh, vigilante violence seemed to be at the centerpiece of the way in which those opportunities were shut down. And that and then uh, an interesting abundance of sources led me to studying the Klan in particular as a kind of a, um, uh, a micro history of that, of that process. And could you begin by telling us a little about the Klan itself, like when and where it emerges and, and why? Yeah. Um, so the Klan, you know, there was a, uh, after emancipation, after the end of slavery with the Civil War, there was a wide swath of different kinds of violence uh, against formerly enslaved people. Uh, not all of it was organized. Not all of it was uh, grouped into you know, right. vigilante groups. Um, and so the Klan uh, was formed by a couple of young men in Pulaski, Tennessee in 1866, 18, early 1867, um, as a kind of knockoff of a fraternal organization, a college fraternity. That's mm -hmm. why it's Ku Klux Klan. Uh, they took the Greek word kuklos, twisted it around, added a K to have a third letter, a clan to have a third letter for alliteration and to make it seem like a frat. Um, and uh, then that increasingly became popular uh, among uh, former Confederates and white supremacists in Tennessee. Sure. Uh, and then it spread to other southern states, especially after um, uh, the Military Reconstruction Acts, uh, which kind of reorganized southern state governments in an attempt to get them to stop different forms of racial oppression and ratify the 14th Amendment. So the Klan really emerges regionally across the South in about 1868. 
uh-huh. it operated for about um, three to four years. There was a massive federal investigation in 1871. Lots of different Klansmen were um, arrested, tried, a few were convicted, and um, uh, the, the federal investigation ended up driving the Klan underground, along with the fact that more and more different kinds of organized groups of vigilantes became popular who didn't use disguises, right. uh, and that led to the reversal of Reconstruction and the kind of um, uh, normalization of vigilantism. So the Klan as a disguised group of men in hoods, right. night riding, sort of ceased to exist until it was brought back in the 20th century. And when, when uh, and I don't want to get too far afield, yeah, yeah. but the 20th century Klan and I guess the contemporary Klan, do they... Is there really a, a kind of linear uh, descent from the uh, from the original, or is it just they're just taking kind of the trappings of the uh, Reconstruction era clan and and kind of fitting themselves into them? Uh, yeah, the, there's no real linear progression. The the clan as an organization, sort of throughout U.S. history, has always reinvented itself. Mm-hmm. There have always been different times where it's been created, and there has never been only just one Ku Klux Klan. That they're often competing groups. If you like, go to the Southern Poverty Law Center's website today and look up clan groups. There are all these different names: sure. Loyal Knights, the Original Knights, the uh, the Organized Clans. Right. Um, and so there's never been a sort of timeless history. But there was a break where no one really called themselves much of a clan until 1915. The popularity of the movie Birth of a Nation Interesting. led to a resurgence and kind of a recreation. And, and that's when um, uh, uh, the first cross was burned. Um, that didn't really exist during Reconstruction. Um, and uh, the clan of the teens and 20s became much more like a um, uh almost a pyramid scheme of membership dues filtering up to the national huh. level. So, so, so it was very different than the Reconstruction right. Klan, but they liked to project a certain timelessness. And uh, the Klan has always um, uh, embraced an identity as being organic and timeless and, and traditionally American in many ways. So let's, getting back to uh, the Reconstruction era Klan, mm-hmm. um, I guess in my mind, I think of uh, of uh, it just from what I've kind of just what filters to me as being comprised of poor whites, poor Southern whites. Is that I mean, who joins the Klan? And you, and in a very interesting way, have really delved into uh, the Klan membership at this time and what motivates them. Can you say you know why does someone join the Klan and what who are they? Yeah, well, um, the fact. You know, when I was looking, when I when I first began researching it, the fact that uh, I a person, not just me, that you can identify people who were in the Klan during Reconstruction, became one of the things that was most interesting and compelling to me because they project, you know, through the use of disguises, through hoods, through sure. the kind of the classic Klan iconography, they like to project. Uh, anonymity and uniformity um, and they like to project that it you know it's uh, it, it, that these are not real normal people right um, uh, and then there are a couple of myths around around clan membership or or maybe not myths uh, preconceived notions and you know they tilt for for different things and and one is obviously that there were there were poorer white men mm-hmm. uh, and that kind of dominates a lot of our thinking of racism in general that often 
working class whites are blamed for racial antagonism, racial sure. oppression, and racism is seen as simply just ignorance. And if people were more educated or, you know, they were less they had less economic anxiety, then there would be no racism. And that's obviously not been true yeah, through right. different things. Uh, and then uh, kind of there's also sort of a preconception with the Klan that um, with each sort of iteration of the Klan, it's gone down a rung in the socioeconomic ladder. So there's an idea that maybe in Reconstruction they were notable elites, uh, noble people who weren't you know, ordinary criminals, but were the, the most respectable members of society. And then in the first half of the 20th century, it became sort of a middle class organization of white Protestants. Right. And then in the 60s, it kind of went down a level. And then even today, it's, you know, even even further that only the poorest of the poor uh, uh, white folks would, would join the Klan. And uh, in each of those iterations, there are a lot of different complications or nuances to that story. So through my research, I've identified... Um, uh, hundreds, al almost a thousand Klansmen, hmm. and just through names, either um, either documents internal to the Klan that they, you know, they in their manuscripts they say they were members of it, or folks identified them, uh, named them in sources, yeah. or printed in newspapers, or they were indicted and arrested. Right. And which each, which each of those kinds of sources, there are some some possibilities that that maybe people are being unfairly named or. Um, uh, but 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 in general, I think these these are men who we can be certain of 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 identifying as having participated at some level in the organization or in racial violence. So from that sort of set, um, I did a, a, a hopefully representative randomized sample looking uh, almost 200 folks up in this in censuses in 1860, 1870, and 1880 to to track them across the time of Reconstruction, and the Klan. During Reconstruction, really, very much was cross-class. There were some men who were incredibly poor, were illiterate. Sure. Uh, some folks who were bootleggers who, well into their twenties, lived with parents propertyless. Uh, and then there were lots of folks who were incredibly wealthy and elite. Uh, later became members of state legislatures. Hmm. Um, um, uh, some of the some of the wealthiest, most notable men of the South participated. Uh, so it then becomes a little hard to average, like what, what does an average Klansman mean? And on the whole, um, uh, Klansman, you know, the, the chief way of measuring wealth in the South in the 19th century was slavery, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and Klansmen were about twice as likely to have owned slaves or lived in households that owned slaves uh, relative to other white Southerners. So, oh. you know, most... Uh, so. My, my study is of North and South Carolina just because you can drown in sources and it's right, nice sure. to focus it. Um, and so in, in the Carolinas, roughly about a third of white Southerners owned slaves or, or their families owned right. slaves. Okay. Klansmen, it was about in the 60s. 60% 60 of Klansmen owned slaves or lived So they had a, a real grievance that they could uh, kind of act out. Precisely. And, uh, you know, so obviously emancipation was a central central motivating factor for joining the Klan, sure. uh, but not just emancipation, uh, also black citizenship. I mean, it really emerges only in 1860s, late 1867, early 1868, when uh, Southern states are having elections to redraft their constitutions. Black men are involved in that process. There's a lot of violence around the 1868 presidential election when mm. black men can vote, and it continues throughout the early 1870s. Uh, so it's it's both a grievance from emancipation, but then it's also seeing people that had been 
um, had been owned as property incorporated as citizens' ability, to, you know, able to participate in the political process in ways that they hadn't been before. So, um, so are they, in, in essence, kind of the, the armed uh, wing of a political insurgency? Do they, are there real connections between, as you mentioned, there are some very kind of prominent uh, clan members, but I assume they're working with people who, uh, who claim no connection with a clan mm-hmm. and, and who are, uh, are actively working uh, against uh, reconstruction and, and African-American citizenship and the like. Yeah, there's a way in which they definitely are operating as kind of a, a wing of the Democratic Party, the sort mm. of, um, to use an ahistorical term, sort of stormtroopers of the Democratic Party. Um, but their violence wasn't always only around electoral politics. Uh, they also uh, punished, um, you know, if certain white Southerners were giving too fair of deals to uh, black tenant farmers, Klan would attack those white planters. Um, uh-huh. If uh, you know, they, they, it also operated as kind of a a, a method of social regulation. Um, so it very much was aligned with the political interests of the Democratic Party. But a lot of prominent Democrats liked to have some sort of plausible deniability about their connections sure. to the Klan, and um, uh, and then uh, Klan violence was not only about voting or office holding. It largely was, and it was because of black citizenship, um, but it wasn't only purely interested with um, with electoral politics. You know, something that your work speaks to uh, that is often missing is in focusing on clan violence, uh, you neglect the response of uh, mm. African Americans. Uh, could you say a little about how uh, Black Southerners are responding to uh, this violence. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll say that one of the um, ambivalences that I've had about my work every now and then is is centering the lives of white supremacists and, mm. uh, you know, centering mm. the actions of people who uh, not only um, were racist themselves, but created a method of, of enforcing racial oppression sure. that has longstanding impacts. And um, sometimes I wonder how, you know, <laughs> centering the lives of people who fight racism and, and fight white supremacy is, is critically important. And that's been something that has has been um, uh, relieving is the wrong word, but but good about the research that I've right. done because the the activism of African-Americans in both asserting their citizenship rights and doing the kind of work and organizing that led to racist violence in the first place. Sure. Um, that is at the centerpiece. And then how they re- how they did respond to it. So um, black people fought back against the Klan in every imaginable way. Uh, if the Klan would show up at people's houses, sometimes they'd shoot back. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had found t- in, in sources two different uh, separate corroboratable stories of black people attacking Klansmen with axes. You know, if they didn't have guns, they mm-hmm. used everything. Um, and then organizing politically, um, uh, helping the federal investigation, um, uh, ratting people out, you know, right. no, knowing right. that people Identifying were members of the, people I, I, in the Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and uh, and then in um, in cities, so, so some Klansmen were arrested and they were brought to different southern cities, uh-huh. Columbia, South Carolina, Raleigh, North Carolina. And in both of those cities, uh, when Klansmen were sort of transported through the streets, hordes of black people would show up to jeer and taunt wow. them. 
um, I shouldn't say hordes, crowds of black people right. would show up to, to, to taunt and jeer them. Um, so there's obviously a sustained effort on the part of African-Americans to stop the violence over terrifying yep. communities. So uh, in addition to these uh, active uh, ways of fighting the Klan, how did they use uh, what political power they had to fight the Klan? Yeah, um, so there were, I mean, as far up as uh, African-Americans, members of U.S. Congress uh, helping to pass the legislation to, uh, to it was called the Enforcement Act, right. um, all the way down to African-Americans could hold uh, elected office at the time at the local level. So lots of county commissioners, local magistrates, um, uh, there, there was just sort of Every conceivable form of political activism that African-Americans had at the time uh, was centered around trying to support their own communities and uh, stop the different kinds of oppression that they were suffering. Um, and so uh, uh, there was lots of different... Um, Lots of different forms sure. that that activism took. You know, one of the most interesting parts of your research was uh, the formation of black militias, which I assume are uh, are there are self defense uh, organizations. Uh, you mentioned Williams. I, I forget. Yeah, Jim Williams. Yeah. Is the, uh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, you know, militias were obviously central pieces of sort of um, civic and, and social and political life of the United States dating back before the revolution. And uh, uh, after the Civil War, once African-Americans were more and more incorporated into social and civil life, uh, militia organizing became a central way that they um, they asserted citizenship. Second Amendment. <laughs> yeah, Second Amendment. Very, exactly. Um <laughs> And uh, and so um, uh, North Carolina tried to dabble some with mixed race militias. It didn't mm -hmm. work very well. South Carolina has a much more polarized um, racial dynamic. There are very right. few white South Carolinians who become Republicans and supported uh, supported black uh, citizenship. Um, so in South Carolina, there just could be no interracial militias. So in the 1869, 1870, the governor resets up the militial system um, and almost every militia unit is black. <laughs> and the governor sends, I mean, there are, you know, elected officers and uh, uh, breech loading rifles are ordered and sent to them and militia uh, companies organize and they march and they march to protect voting rights. They, um, uh, some of these men had been members of uh um, of uh, civil war companies. Uh, many of them had not. Um, uh, it seems like uh, men who had served in the civil war often became elected officers and would train them. Um, and uh, the Klan then began targeting militias. Sure. Uh, and so there's, there's one particular story um, of, a, of the black militia in uh, upcountry South Carolina uh, today it's the upstate, sort of the area near Spartanburg and mm. just south of just south of Charlotte, North Carolina, um, Rock Hill, uh, the town, and and York County. Um, there was one militia captain who was particularly um, uh, um, active in in how he he drilled his troops, how he trained his men, and they would march every Sunday with a drum through town, uh, fully armed, bayonets rifles, rifle boxes. Uh, they would march in support of elections. 
And in the, uh, the winter and spring of 1871, more and more Klan activism started happening in that area. And Williams uh, was obviously upset by that and uh, um, tried to get his, uh, his militia um, to be able to, to shut down the Klan. And he often had meetings with um, prominent conservatives, tried to broker peace deals more or less between, sure. uh, between the Klan um, and the black communities they were terrorizing. Well, a, um, a rumor began circulating that Williams made a threat that if Klan violence didn't stop, he was going to kill every white person in the county from the cradle to the grave was the specific phrase mm. used, meaning of all ages. Right. So from the youngest infant all the way or sweep even the cradles. Uh, I think it's highly unlikely he said it. Um, uh, personal testimonies from people who knew him uh, said that he was actually a very tempered, sober I mean, uh, you know, kind family man is, right. is, is a lot of the language that we use to describe him. Um, but uh, this rumor, uh, which circulated before his death, was, was part of the justification that Klansmen used for, for assassinating him. And so one night, uh, the Klan rode around. Um, his militia members were all asleep, and they went from house to house, stole their rifles um, that they had still yeah. kept. Uh, and... Um, and went to Williams's house and and hanged him, mm. um, uh, dragged him out of the house that he was in with his wife and children, uh, took him out to a um, a tree and hanged him. Um, and and that uh, uh, that murder, that assassination, led to increased attention on that area and the dispatch of more U.S. troops to the area and the arrest of several Klansmen. One Klansman, uh, the chief architect of it. Um, fled the area, actually fled the country, went to um, uh, London, Ontario, was hiding out in wow. Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, by the way, kind of a, a, a where many uh, escaped slaves found themselves before. Right. right. He was a physician and he began practicing there, uh, became a kind of beloved mu uh, member of that community. Uh, secret U.S. detective. This is one of the things that uh, uh, truth is stranger than fiction. Secret U.S. detectives. Um, uh, broke into the post office of London, uh, discovered correspondence that suggested a major Klan leader was there. Um, they found him. They arrested him off of the streets. They took him back to the United States. Canada protested the extradition. Right. Uh, Canada yeah. recently becoming independent and considering him a political uh, refugee. And so he was released and uh, went back and lived in um, Canada for five or ten years. Until Reconstruction was reversed and it became clear that no prosecution was going to happen. And then he moved back down to South Carolina. That's an amazing story. Yeah. So uh, did, was there um, a cooperation between federal troops and black militias? Uh, there was some cooperation. Um, uh, sadly, most active militia, black militia companies um, didn't have the resources, didn't have the organizational strength to fight the Klan. And so many of them were, were broken up and many, many members intimidated or killed. Um, and that's what would lead to U.S. troops I being see. dispatched to an area. So there wasn't a lot of um, uh, interactive support because there was kind of a major power differential between what U.S. troops could do and what black militias who were undertrained, underfunded, undersupported right. were capable of doing. Um, so there wasn't a lot of coordination. So you, uh, as you were saying, you're studying North and South Carolina because you kind of have to 
got to concentrate somewhere. But in your studies, uh, and you've said a little about the nature of South Carolina compared to North Carolina, uh, how is, is the Klan different? Are there different, uh, any similarities? Or, you know, how do, how, do the, how do the two states compare? You know, it's, a, it's actually the similarities between the ways in which the Klan operated in the two states that I find most interesting. Mm. Um, uh, the Carolinas in general um, probably sort of because of organizational ties within the, or, the the clan, saw the most sustained coordination and the kind of you know it, uh, the clan was more organized in the Carolinas than it was, say, in Alabama or or Georgia. Um, but uh, the you know I like studying the two states because uh, they're very different politically. Um, uh, it's kind of cute, but South Carolina was the first state to secede um, right. to join the Confederacy. And North Carolina was the last. Hmm. Um, South Carolina had a, a black majority and large African-American population and a very radically conservative white Southern population. North Carolina had a smaller black population, but a white population that was much more moderate. And many white North Carolinians became opposed to the Civil War during its course. They even ran a pro-peace governor uh, in, uh, for election in 1864. He was defeated. Um, but sort of uh, the, the two dynamics means that if, if Reconstruction was going to succeed anywhere because of uh, numbers of African-American voters and office holders, it would have been South Carolina. And if Reconstruction was going to uh, work anywhere with the support of moderate white Southerners who became Republicans and allied with African-Americans, that was going to be North Carolina. And the Klan in both of these states target politicians, sure. white and black, uh, whip and intimidate voters, um, uh, try and ensure that um, African-Americans get no... Uh, good um, sort of post-slavery labor contracts, um, and, yeah, and 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 you know on, only get the um, the worst possible economic deal, um, and try and regulate social behaviors around um, uh, common interactions, sexual interactions, marriage um, between whites and blacks. So the, the Klan looks and operates similarly in both of the states, despite the sort of uh, political differences. And in some ways, it sounds like they're also, uh, through these means, kind of just beginning to institutionalize what will become Jim Crow. I mean, really yeah. you know, kind of enforce uh, segregation and in all its forms, uh, which actually brings me to something that we haven't uh, talked much about. And that is uh, thinking about the Klan as, as having an ideology. Mm. Uh, you know, it's easy to kind of think these you know, to dismiss, I guess, dismiss that and just think, well, they're racist. But I mean, what does that, what does that mean? Right. Yeah. I, that's, you know, that's another sort of centerpiece of, of uh, what I find most important about understanding racial violence, um, that it, it's not just, as we were talking about sort of the, um, uh, the class makeup of, of the Klan, um, you know, economics cannot explain exactly why racial violence happens, yeah. um, that uh, it, it certainly played into certain antagonisms, but it, 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 
you know, this economic anxiety can't answer exactly why racial violence happened because a lot of poor white folks don't join the Klan. African-Americans sure. who are so much poorer don't turn to violence against white people. So, you know, that falls down as a framework. But then just stopping at the idea that, oh, these are, okay, then these are just endemically racist people who, um, yeah. uh, you know, their brains are wired incorrectly and they're ignorant. Right. Um, uh, that that also isn't a sufficient expl explanation um, uh, for lots of different reasons, not the least of which is um, those of us who believe that um, that there can be uh, racial justice and you know cooperative uh, interracial political alliances um, shouldn't uh, shouldn't accept the idea that black and white people are naturally going to fight, right, uh, which right. is kind of the, the assumption behind um, uh, the explanation, stopping right. at the explanation that these are just racist. So, um, yeah, it's very clear that patterns of Klan violence uh, demonstrate and, and the words and um, uh, justifications that they, the words they use, the justifications they give for violence shows that they had kind of an idea of how they wanted race to operate, and that they had an ideology of, of, of how perceived differences between people ought to be implemented in the real world, um, that uh, slavery was gone, and they weren't trying to just simply bring back slavery, um, but segregation hadn't yet been invented. Yeah. Um, and so their central ideology was that um, uh, white people can organize, commit illegal activities to punish behavior of either white or black people um, uh, who are operating um, uh, in supportive or um, who are cooperating around race. Um, and instead, uh, Klan and you know the Klan ideology is that uh, life is a winner-take-all struggle uh, between groups of people, and where any African American has any semblance of political power, that means that white people are being oppressed, and so white people have to control all level level levers of uh, social, economic, political power, um, and uh, and there's no room for any form of interracial cooperation. So they have this vision of Southern society and what it should look like. Right. And, but as well as that, I, it sounds like a kind of universalist vision of what, uh, what, what America should be like or what the like, mm -hmm. uh, kind of the contest between nations uh, is about. It's kind of driven by white nationalism, I, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, they had uh, lots of... Um there was lots of language around a, just a common assumption that a war of races was going to happen, that after African-Americans had been have, you know, freed from slavery, they assumed that African-Americans were going to respond to that by oppressing white people, killing white people, starting a war of races. Um, and so the Klan launched a preemptive strike. Um, you know, their, their assumption that white and black could not get along meant that black people had to be a entirely oppressed and white people had to control all level, you know, levers of power. So I think you said that you kind of began your project by uh, with an interest in just political violence through American history and then focused on that. Just backing up, do you see this, uh, this toxic ideology? Mm. Uh, uh, do you see uh, remnants of it? Uh, is this a, a thread in kind of a American political thinking that uh, that continues that has uh, staying power. Um, 
Yes and no. I, you know, I, I always think it's important to think as much as possible about the ways in which different historical time periods are are, are unique and different, and we have discontinuities, and that um, you know they're they're not certain things from our past that have to constantly poison uh, right. and, and structure. There's hope. There, there, <laughs> the, you know, there there is hope, and 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 there are certainly differences. Um, I also think that. Um, there are things about the ideology of racism that the Klan um, coined that don't exist as much as they used to. Hmm. Um, so the you know, there's kind of two centerpieces to how how Klansmen saw um, race race op or you know how, how how they perceived vigilante violence. And one is an assumption that um, black people were innately criminal and in need of of policing and control and and structure, and another is that white people are um, sort of uh, innately innocent in anything they do to enforce that, even if it's breaking the law. Hmm. Uh, so any clan activity they wrote off as being entirely legitimate, and even if laws had been passed that made their activity criminal, they were innocent. Um, and that was really, of course, the centerpiece of lynch law, um, you know, the, the prevalence of lynching yeah. through the South, that mobs of white people could, um, regardless of what the law said, could decide who should live and who should die around supposed issues sure, of crime. Yeah, yeah. Um, that certainly has played into our notions of how law and order should operate and how um, uh, and you know the rise of mass incarceration and you know sure. continued yeah. notions of of innate black criminality continue to structure things but that sort of that those narratives of white innocence uh, no longer lead to quite as much vigilantism although certainly with things right. like the murder of Trayvon Martin we still see that yeah. incredibly popular but more through the apparatus of the state itself um, so more through um, you know through, through policing and through Sentencing mass incarceration. and exactly. other ways that, that you can kind of point to. Exactly. So, so there's, there's, there's in some senses less vigilantism, sort of less white people on their own deciding to organize. Right. Um, it's, it still exists far more than it should, but um, more control of the state and getting the state to dictate, um, uh, to police black criminality. So we usually end by asking our, our visitor to give a few... Uh, uh, sources that people interested in this topic might look into. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, kind of there are different ways of determining um, <laughs> where, where my work most, uh, uh, you know, uh, most resonates. So uh, the history of Reconstruction, um, Eric Foner's book on Reconstruction Absolutely. is still a great, wonderful entry, entry point. Um, a really good book on post-Civil War violence in general that has shaped a lot of my thinking, especially um, in dealing with not um, seemingly not partisan political violence, uh, uh, is Hannah Rosen's Terror in the Heart of Freedom. It's a study of um, sort of sexualized violence and, and how vigilantism um, embedded itself in the fabric of how Southerners perceived of race relations. And then for folks interested in the Klan itself, uh, there's a new book by Elaine France Parsons called Ku Klux about the Klan during Reconstruction, which is a really wonderful um, cultural history of how the Klan was formed, how it was disseminated, how it was perceived by white Northerners, um, and at some at how it operated at the local level that I, 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 think, I think folks would really enjoy that book.
Well, thank you, Brad. It's been great talking to you. And I have to say, it's been wonderful having you here at, here at Yale. And I know we're all going to miss you. No, thank you very much. It's been wonderful. And i am so uh, been wonderful to be a part of the GLC's work. Um, and uh, I've really enjoyed the opportunity. And thanks for doing the podcast. Slavery and Its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Additional support is provided by the Rabina Foundation. Each episode is produced by Thomas Thurston and Daniel Vera, with additional production support by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the Gilda Lehrman Center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.